Well, our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Revelation. That's the last book you have there in your Bible, so go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there or get your phones out and swipe there. And we're in chapter 22 of Revelation, and we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And if you are willing, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on, the, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will they will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All of us, we long for home. Even the most tried and true and travel hungry among us, we long for home. There's a desire there. And those who say it's not, it's, you know, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey, they know how hollow that adage really is. Because at some point they'll be honest with themselves and admit just how disappointing the journey has been. No, all of us long for a home, a place of satisfaction, a place of delight, a place of rest. And we seem endlessly restless in trying to find that place right now. Uh, for my generation, when there is any hint of dissatisfaction in their lives, we plot and we scheme and we try to make things more comfortable. I mean, at the drop of a hat, we'll drop out of school. And we'll change majors and change jobs and change churches. We're searching and searching, but never quite arriving. All of us knowing this feeling of kind of being out of place in this world. We're not at home with our bodies. I mean, they betray us all in some measure including aging and disease and frailty. Our homes are never quite homes. Some of us right now, we're, we're looking to buy a home or we're looking to move on to our next home or some of us, we have our homes and we're doing more home improvements. Our marriages are not home. They never perfectly display what they're meant to display. There's at least a little bit of conflict there. 
Our children are not home. Parents quickly discover how child-rearing is the most difficult job in the world. And guess what? All of it is aimed in our child-rearing to prepare our children to what? To leave home. Our churches aren't home. Yes, it is the household of God. And yet we know that the church also is full of sinners. Brokenness, disagreements, and lukewarmness. You know, our vocations are not homes. Our, mis- our ministries are not homes. And what we need to be ready to embrace, I think, is that in all our dissatisfaction, in all the restlessness that we feel in our hearts, we must be ready to embrace that that is good and it is God-given. That God and his providence wants us to feel dissatisfied. That he wants us to feel something unsettling here and to seek a homeland, a better country. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The reason home is so elusive, the reason we are so restless, is because we are made for another world. And Christians call that world heaven. And Jesus was always directing our attention to heaven. He was exhorting us, do not lay up your treasures here on earth, but in heaven. He says, you will reign in heaven. He told the thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul speaks of an eternal weight of glory that is awaiting us. And Peter spoke of a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. So what I want to do today as we look to this very last vision in the book of Revelation, what I want us to do today is not only to acknowledge that there's a heaven, not only to believe that there's a heaven, but for us to long for it and for us to live for it. Now, I want to do that this morning by looking at two particular places Paradise Lost, the Garden of Eden, and second, Paradise Regained, the New Jerusalem, which is our passage this morning. Now, if you've been with us for the past several weeks, we have been working through the final two chapters of Revelation, and we've been given a glimpse of what it's like. Heaven has been referred to as a bride. It has been described as a city has been likened to the Holy of Holies. And now in chapter 22, the metaphor of the city fades away, and what, it ha- what we see is a garden. Now, why a garden? Because this last vision in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible is bringing us all the way back to the beginning, hearkening us to the very first chapters of the very first book in the book of Genesis and the Garden of Eden, the place we are meant to be. Which brings us to our very first destination, Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost, the Garden of Eden. 
Now, if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there to, it's easy to find, it's just the opposite side of where Revelation is. Genesis chapter 1. And we see that the garden was a perfect paradise. In verse 31, it said, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. And what we see in chapter 2 is a vision of that good life. The way things are supposed to be. Look at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. This is a strikingly good image of the natural world. The pictures of streams coming out of the earth to water the grounds. Birds and fly, our birds are flying and fish are swimming. And it's almost as if in the background you're hearing Louis Armstrong singing, What a Wonderful World. And there's nothing but cooperation from nature. No strife, no painful toil. The ground is fertile. The the, the moisture is enough, but it's not too much. The trees are growing tall and strong. They bear fruit. The animals, as we see later in the chapter, come peaceably to Adam. You know, they don't run away from him, and he doesn't need to run after them. They come gently before him that he might name each one. It's a picture of the natural world as God created it in all of its intimacy, in all of its wonder, in all of its splendor. You also see man and woman in the garden. The crown of God's creation filled with nobility, filled with righteousness made in God's image without sin. What's more is that work is good if you look in this chapter. Yes, good Work. I mean, it sounds like an oxymoron, but God made us to be active, to work. And the work, it took effort, it took skill, but it was joyful. No thorns, no thistles, no pain in childbearing, no disobedient children, no computer crashes, no anxious deadlines, no bad bosses, no incompetent employees, no workroom gossip. I mean, just an honest day's work under the smiling face of God. And there's also the tree of life that is there, symbolizing that men and women will live and move and have their being in God. And the tree of life means ongoing life and eternal life. But best of all, God was there. He walked among them in the cool of the day, it says in Genesis 3. This is the way it was supposed to be. This is what God wanted for his people. This was home. But as you know, it did not last. In chapter 3, sin entered the world. A serpent came and tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell, or to put it actively, they were cursed. Everything is cursed. 
The ground is cursed. The work is cursed. Fruitfulness is cursed. Childbearing is cursed. Paul says in Romans 8 that creation groans to be set free from its bondage to decay, to decay because God in judgment subjected it to futility and corruption. Genesis 3.21 talks about how a sacrifice needed to be made. Animals needed to be killed to clothe Adam and Eve. But perhaps the most devastating consequence for their sin, it's banishment. Not just banishment. In chapter 3, verse 24, it says what? God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, this angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And ever since Genesis 3, the goal and what God is doing is to bring us back to Eden. For us to go past the gates again. For us to go past the cherubim. To get past the cherubim and back into the garden. God created the world as it was supposed to be a home for us, but it was marred. It was as if God built this wonderful house on acres and acres of land, and there was a garden there, and there was a vineyard there, and a beautiful house filled with rooms to enjoy. But instead, the children took the grapes from the vineyard to get good and drunk. And those rooms, those bedrooms built for safety and protection became dens of adultery and smut and children kill each other they lie to one another and worse they declare that they want their father dead or they don't even they say you don't even exist and in love and holiness and in judgment god drove them out no longer would they enjoy the garden no longer would they experience a sense of home they would not partake of the tree of life but in this judgment you notice that there is grace when you read through chapter 3. And ultimately, since being displaced, God in all sorts of ways has been trying to bring his people back, back, back to the garden. That's paradise lost, the Garden of Eden. Second, we look to paradise regained in the New Jerusalem. Look with me in our passage in Revelation 22. Flip back there. Again, this new Jerusalem is not only a city and not only cube-shaped like the Holy of Holies, but in chapter 22, it is a garden. And notice the features of the garden. In verse 1, there is a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Now, this language here reminds, reminds us of Psalm 46.4. It reminds me of that, that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And the background here is that river of Genesis that we saw earlier. But not only Genesis, but also Ezekiel 47. So if you don't have to turn there, but if you ever look at Ezekiel 47 and the temple, there is this new temple, a renewed temple, and a river flows out from it to the south of the altar and turns everything it touches fresh, even salt water, fresh. All so that there would be living creatures and fish would flourish. In other words, 
this vision is not merely a picture communicating some type of hydrology of the new heaven and new earth. No, it's communicating theology. It is saying that it is a place not merely of survival, but of life, teeming with life. Without water, we all die, but here the river comes through the city as its main thoroughfare. It is the main place in the middle of the city. It is eternal life for all the people of God, but that's not all. In the garden, it says in verse 2 that there's the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit and bearing fruit every, you know, for each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing. This is a tree that never runs out of fruit. 12 fruit, 12 times a year. In other words, there is never a time in this, for this tree that this tree experiences a barren season. It never possesses an empty branch. You see, heaven is a place with no more tears, no more death, no more mourning. There will be no more hunger. All needs will be met for eternity. There will be satisfaction and delight and joy and, and all that. There's no more discontentment. And the leaves of this tree, they will be for healing, healing everything. All the scars left behind by sin. All the scars left behind by pornography or the, in, the wounds inflicted by harsh wounds or the disfigurement of racism. It will all be healed. The relational tearing apart by divorce or the emotional scars of abuse, government corruption caused by greed, that will be healed. Here it is. It's home. It's paradise regained. It is the Garden of Eden, but it is Garden of Eden 2.0, isn't it? Because notice in verse 3, what does it say? No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. In other words, there is nothing accursed. There's no more curse, no serpent. There will be no temptation to live autonomously, to live separately from God. It's the greater garden because it is total security it's you know later it's, in verse 4 it talks about names being on their foreheads this is a sign of ownership there will be no danger of a second fall and, and third it is not just adam and eve in the garden it says the nations are there doesn't it the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations this isn't a place for just two middle easterners God will gather up the full range of the world's ethnic diversity. He will not obliterate people. Somehow in our redeemed bodies, in our resurrected bodies, in our renewed bodies, we will be, we'll have some, some ethnicity or some markers that show that we are of the nations. The home God intends to share with his people for all eternity will be far more satisfying, far more secure, far more glorious than the original Eden. C.S. Lewis, in the last battle of his Chronicles of Narnia series, he puts it this way, and he puts it better than any other commentary that I've read on this passage. He writes, The things that begin to happen, that began to happen, after that, were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. 
all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. But notice one more thing about home. And we haven't mentioned it yet. And it's kind of one of those blink and you miss it kind of phrases in this passage. But here's the best part of home. Just like Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, it says in verse 4, we will be with our Lord and they will see his face. This has been the theme of almost every sermon that I've been preaching over the past several weeks in Revelation. We always end up here, always end up in the presence of God because heaven is not about the place, it is about the person. What makes home home is Jesus. You know, sometimes my wife will call me or she'll text me and she'll say something like, are you home? And, you know, pastors were just kind of cheesy and that's just how we are. And so I'll respond with something like, home is where you are. And I can just imagine her rolling her eyes. She's probably doing it right now and I can't look. But that's true, isn't it? That we are not content until we see each other face to face without masks. We're sick of FaceTime. We are, what, filled with Zoom fatigue. We'll say that over and over again. And did you know Apostle John felt the same way? First John, or second John, he says, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. And we will never feel at home until we are face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might be wondering, or maybe you have never wondered, but how will this be? How is that possible? I mean, what does it mean to see God? Jesus promised it in the Beatitudes that those who are pure in heart will, will see God. And one of the most famous lines that Paul has ever penned is probably 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then what? Face to face. Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we, will, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now, Christians have long called this great promise the beatific vision, meaning the sight that makes happy. This is the great happiness to come. The moment we stand face to face before Jesus to perceive him visually, immediately. But there's a problem. Because when you thumb through the pages of Scripture, there's also what we might call a doctrine of invisibility, a doctrine of divine invisibility. Because Paul in Colossians calls God the invisible God. The Apostle John, 1 John 4.12 says, no one has ever seen God. 1 Timothy 1, it says, to the king of the ages, immortal, what? Invisible. And that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Moses wanted to see the face of God 
And God said, no. He says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Isaiah, you know, in that famous passage in Isaiah 6, he says, I saw the Lord, but does he really see the Lord? No, he, what he sees is smoke in the temple. He, he kind of looks up, and what he sees is basically the hem of the robe of God. He doesn't see God face to face. John, in this gospel of John, says, what, what is God? God is spirit. He has no form. That's what John says in John 4, 24. So how do you see someone who's spirit and has no form? And some have answered, well, you know, we're going to have our resurrected bodies. And we will be able to see our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, who will forever be the God-man. Uh, we will be free, as John Owen says, from all the clogs of the flesh, perfectly purified. And so that in, uh, in that state, we will see the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. After all, did not Jesus say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father? But is that it? Will we only see Christ in his humanity, but not in his deity? Will we not see the face of our Father? Here's where Jonathan Edwards has been so helpful for me. He writes this. The saints shall enjoy God as partaking with Christ of his enjoyment of God. For they are united to him and are glorified and made happy in the enjoyment of God as his members. In other words, what he's saying it is that in our union with Christ that will be f even more full, we will have the ability to see Christ as Christ sees God. Edwards goes on to suggest that the saints will see everything lovely with the eyes of the soul. In other words, the proposal here is that you know, Jesus won't just disappear. God will not just disappear when we close our eyes. When we blink, it's like, oh, he, 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 he reappeared again. No, but you're going to see God with your whole soul. We will always be beholding him. Now, is there some conjecture behind this kind of proposal? Maybe, but the promise is clear. Is, it is this, that you will see God. And can you believe it, church? Can you believe that you will be doing something that holy angels can't do? Angels, holy angels, cover their eyes before God. But you will see his face and not die. You will not be consumed in some measure by the eyes of faith as manifested in Christ, as previewed in the transfiguration, in the gift of the Spirit, we will see his face. In the framework of the garden, where every joy will be perfected, every security uncompromised, and our rejoicing, our worshiping, our serving, our singing, all of that, our working, our learning, we will be seen, and we will see God. The sight will never be static, never boring, because as Edward, Edwards put, puts it, after having the pleasure of beholding the face of God millions of ages, the relish of this delight will be as exquisite as ever. Blessed indeed, happy indeed, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Before the face of Christ, we find our home. And as Augustine famously put it, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, 
your Father in heaven bids you come home. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter what road you've wandered down, whether it's just self-determination or ambition or sex or apathy, whether you feel like you still haven't found what you're looking for or whether you feel lonely or whatever it might be, the road home will not be finished by running faster in frenetic pace. The road home It won't get better by just crumpling down onto the road and giving up. It won't be telling yourself the road is life as some hollow consolation. But what if someone came to get you? And what if that someone not only knows where the end of the road is, but promises to accompany you all the way to the end until you arrive? You see, it is God. It is God who runs towards the prodigal. And the only way you will ever be at rest, the only way you will return to the place where you belong, residing with the person to whom you belong, is to look to the Lamb. Look, chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation refers to Jesus over and over again as the Lamb. It refers to him seven times in this picture of heaven as the Lamb refers to him that way. Why? Look, this is the most important part that you'll hear this morning from the sermon. The most important thing that you must know, it is that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, He is the grounds by which we return to paradise. In Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. If you trust yourself, you will find no rest and you will only find disappointment and ultimately your life will be a dead end. You will face the wrath of God for an eternity for all the ways that you've treated him as a trifle. But if you'll turn from your sins, if you'll pull over on this highway of hell that you are on right now and look to Christ, and look to Christ and place your trust in his work upon the cross and follow him, you will finally be on your road home. And this isn't a promise that all your problems are going to be solved. That's not the promise here. Or that anxiety that you feel will be quelled. But it will be the first step to belonging to a pilgrim people who will walk alongside you until we enter the gates of paradise together. Church, our sojourn here is but a moment. And the restlessness and fatigue of our pilgrimage here on earth is but a moment. And one day there will be a homecoming beyond imagining. And we must remain faithful and stay on the narrow path. And know this, the best thing about your life in heaven is the best thing of your life right now. It is God. It is Jesus Christ. Church, beloved, brothers and sisters, he is with you. Christ is with you on this road. He will never, never leave you or forsake you. He has promised he will be with you until the end of the age. So don't worry. Home is up ahead. I can't help but think about that last verse that we sung and uh, 
Then if you make it to my funeral, make sure to sing this song. <laughs> I love this song. But this last verse, the bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these pictures of heaven that we've been given over the past several weeks. Oh Lord, may it stir in us a longing for it, for this home that you are preparing for us even now. And Lord, may our focus on heaven transform who we are now during this sojourn, during this pilgrimage here on earth, that we would be of so much good, that we would be filled more with forgiveness and compassion because our treasure still lies ahead. Our treasure that is of Jesus Christ, our reward, Jesus Christ himself is still up ahead. And help us to long to see his face. And during this time, though we are looking at, a, at this mirror darkly, may our time in the scriptures before your word help us to see Jesus and be renewed day by day and transformed more and more into his likeness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.